This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Bonjour, and hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of this season of Conversations with the President. My name is Stephen Rothstein, President of the Canadian Bar Association. I'm speaking to you from Toronto, home to many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Ashinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. I would ask each of you to consider the treaty lands and territories on which you reside as we acknowledge with respect and gratitude the many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis whose footsteps have marked this land for centuries. My guest today is Jordi Hungerford, a Gwich'in of the Northwest Territories and the Yukon. Jordi has quite possibly the most diverse professional background of any of my guests so far on the Conversations with the President podcast series. Jordi speaks Mandarin, can design and build your computer infrastructure, and defend you in court. Jordi, is that true? Well, I do have an electrical engineering degree, but I, I don't know if I could build a computer anytime soon. But uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of uh, different uh, backgrounds and experiences I've had. That's that's good. Well, I can guarantee you that you're even the, the speaking Mandarin. You actually you may not be my first speaker who speaks Mandarin, but you definitely clearly have a, a diverse skill set. So, uh, in addition to that, you hold an MBA and an MA in Eastern Asian Studies and Chinese from Stanford University, a little-known university in, in California, an LLB from UBC, an electrical and computer engineering degree from Queen's University. And you're very good with money, I've been told, which is which is a good skill to have. You're a CFA charter holder, a CAIA a charter holder, and an Action Canadian Fellow. You're a member of the CFA Canada's Canadian Advisory Committee for Investment Policy and a member of the Independent Review Committee on Standard Setting in Canada, which is reviewing audit and sustainability standards, governance, and oversight for Canada. Last but not least, you're a CBA member in good standing. And to be honest with you, that is the most important <laughs> thing that, uh, that I've said today. So welcome, uh, Jordi, to the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me. It's a great chance to chat about uh, chat about reconciliation, and, and uh, that's very close to my, my heart. I'm actually in Ottawa right now talking to the, uh, the senior bureaucracy and the, the senior leadership in government and the opposition talking about pathways for uh, economic reconciliation. So it's an exciting, very exciting time to be in Canada, and I'm very pleased to be here. So thank you. So, so that's a good segue to my first question, which is, can you define what economic reconciliation is, and can you tell us why it's so critical that we focus on it and that we stay focused on it for the future? Yeah. So, I mean, economic reconciliation is the hope that the country can be shared and shared uh, mutually beneficially for all Canadians and that we can have an economy now where Indigenous people can prosper and as well as non-Indigenous people. And that's really what the intent of the, the treaties were back in the day was this idea of sharing of the opportunity. But to achieve the goal, we need to uh, remove barriers that are stopping First Nations from managing. Uh, they need to make a move from managing poverty to managing economic development and wealth. And it's been it's been very challenging for the nations in the last 150 years because the Indian Act deliberately took First Nations out of the national economy. And uh, the Indian Act provided a bunch of restrictions on education. So uh, if you got educated, you were no longer part of the Indian Act band. It put restrictions on mobility. It was, you had to get permission from the Indian Act uh, Indian agent in order to leave a reserve. 
and it shrank the traditional territory down to these small reserves. Nations themselves were prevented from hiring lawyers to uh, push back on their rights. And so Indigenous economies were basically shuttered for 150 years. And there were no you know, business school graduates. There were no there was not a lot of ability to be entrepreneurs. And so that's a multi-generational loss of the ability to do business. Well, in the meantime, the Canadian economy as a whole was able to, uh, to take off. Um, and so that, that's created a massive socioeconomic and capacity gap. And so we can, we can start to fill that through economic reconciliation. And our, my organization is one of those organizations that provides a, an on-ramp towards economic uh, reconciliation. So can you give us a sense of what that economic reconciliation would look like, like some practical ideas of kind of how we can address the barriers which you just discussed? Yeah. Um, so, so there's been a lot of work done out of the United States at Harvard, at the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development. And they looked at a whole bunch of nations across the U.S. and looked at what were some good preconditions in order to get good economic outcomes in the communities. And they looked, they, they basically broke it down into four different buckets. One is uh, sovereignty, so the ability to govern yourself, make decisions for yourself as a community and as a nation. The second was people, so to have leaders that are interested in economic development, that are interested in trying new ideas and institutions. And, and that's something that we focus a lot on is in terms of creating institutions that can build a, a basis for, uh, for, for the nations to have that capacity to look at economic opportunity, to evaluate it, to bring in people that can speak the language of business. And then uh, ensuring at the same time that all this development is done with culturally appropriate lens. So considering uh, the, the Indigenous laws, considering Indigenous customs, and, and the Indigenous ways of thinking in terms of how one evaluates business. So we ourselves are the First Nations Financial Management Board. And so we're an Indigenous-led organization, and we support about half the First Nations in Canada. So we work with those nations to increase their financial and administrative capacity, so the, the back office. And this kind of foundation puts the nations in a position where they can then look at economic development opportunities and work with other organizations that are, are related organizations to uh, look at considerations like potentially taxing on land or or uh, for uh, fuel and tobacco, and then potentially also creating a land registry in order to have security of land ten tenure on reserve, uh, as well as uh, evaluating deals. So we, uh, I mean, we ourselves have had some amazing success. We're working with about 321 of the nations, and there's so that's over half. Uh, so we we put the nations through a process whereby they sign an MOU with us, and then we, we work with them to encourage the adoption of a financial administration law. And so once this law is, is adopted, they can then go through different pathways. And, and the law itself encourages or creates rules for the nation in terms of things like managing conflict of interest, managing transition of political power so that there's a smooth transition, and uh, creating a good set of planning and back office accounting and other kinds of structures so the nations are are ready to manage their financial systems uh, and their financial operations at a very sophisticated level. We've worked with, like I said, a large number of the nations. Some of them then go on to want to be certified. And so we have a certified process uh, which looks at the financial position of the First Nation. So it's balance sheet and it's uh, 
operating statement. And we, uh, if they meet certain criteria, we give them a statement of, of financial position, and then they can take that to go and borrow money from a related organization called the First Nations Finance Authority. And that uh, allows them to borrow at uh, very low rates, basically the government of Ontario rate. You know, other, other kinds of circumstances, you'll see nations borrowing at credit card kinds of rates. So it, it opens the door that the nations can then use that borrowing to, to build infrastructure and other kinds of investments that's important to the community. And we've also got a, got a certain number of clients that want to do another kind of certification, which certifies that the financial administration law is working and that uh, they have all those financial processes in place and they're following them. And um, we found that those nations that get this financial management system certification have uh, increased their own source revenue. Uh, so that's the revenue that they're making on the reserve. It's not government money. It's their own economic development. Um, but it's increased by about 64% over five years. And so that money will go back into the community. It'll go be spent in the surrounding uh, non-Indigenous communities. And we, we think that, uh, you know, this is really breathing life into the, the principles of the Harvard Project. You know, the nations, nations that have these good institutions are then ready to go and create economic uh, wealth and prosperity for the nation. One of the biggest deals we've worked on, which is really exciting is the Clearwater deal in Atlantic Canada. We worked with these nations who wanted to go and take on the purchase with a business on the west coast of British Columbia called Premium Brands. They wanted to buy the largest integrated seafood business on the east coast called Clearwater. I'm actually familiar with it. I think I've gotten lobsters at the airport from Clearwater now that I think about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, so these nations uh, got together and they all got certified through our process all were able to borrow uh, money and then use that money to go and buy fishing licenses, which was part of their uh, treaty rights and, and reinforced by the Marshall decision on the East Coast. And so they took took those licenses, rolled them into the business with premium brands, bought Clearwater and ended up with a 50% ownership of it. So it's uh, an amazing opportunity that we were helping uh, to to realize and it shows, uh, shows the vision of leadership of of those communities out there on the East Coast, particularly Member Two and Chief Paul. And uh, collectively, those nations were, were able to, to transform these rights, these nebulous rights into a real business. So seeing those kinds of real outcomes, they create uh, tremendous impacts on the, on the social and economic development of the communities. And we think that you know, that's unlocking prosperity for the nations, it's unlocking prosperity for premium brands and for all the uh, workers and uh, and the and the value chain that works with Clearwater, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Right. Now, that's clearly a great success story. Have they all been success stories, or have been, there been some learnings along the way that you've you've applied in your work? Um, we've largely had uh, success ourselves with respect to our our certification process and our, our onboarding of the nations. We've had opportunities to work with Indigenous Services Canada. So sometimes if a nation's having trouble and they're starting to go into uh, near near bankruptcy, Indigenous Services Canada will, will go in and start to manage uh, some of the operations um, and, and cut off some of the funding to the band. And so we have developed a program there where instead of that happening, we go in and work with the band to try and get them this financial management system certification. And so we've turned around uh, some nations that were uh, getting close to having some serious economic problems and uh, turn them into uh, a real success story, taking nations that were, 
you know, millions of dollars in debt to suddenly being profitable within a, a few short years because they were able to both have better systems and then use those systems to create better opportunities. Interesting. Interesting. So it begs the question, I know you're a very educated person because I, I read your CV earlier and I was in awe, but how did you get into this space? How did you, did you know earlier on that this is something that you're interested in doing as a, as a young lawyer or even as a, as a young indigenous individual, or did you, like, how did this all come about? Um, well, I'd say it came about, I was, I was inspired a lot by my, uh, my great grandmother and she passed away when I was 20 or so. And, uh, so she would tell me a lot of, uh, stories about her and her family growing up in, in the North. And, uh, it just, the way that she could storytell, it was very exciting. She was, uh, also blind and a shut-in. So she um, was always looking to talk to family members, and I was the one that ended up talking to her a lot of the time uh, over the telephone and in person. And through, through that experience, I was, I, I was taught to be proud of my family, and I was also inspired by the values, I think, that a, a lot of values for Indigenous people are conveyed through stories. And I, I guess it's, it's true as well when you think about storytelling and other traditions too like you think about the storytelling in the bible you know those are stories that are that are there because they were important historical stories but also they conveyed certain kinds of um uh, values and meanings to people and so through that i i i wanted to learn more about uh about indigenous um more about my family more about uh um what what happened you know she she basically told me all these stories, but she would stop chronologically around uh, 1920 or so. And that was kind of the time when you had a, a big settler population coming into um, Edmonton, where she was living, and um, she'd moved down from Fort Chippewan. And uh, I think she just found it very difficult for herself, uh, for her mother, who was a widow, uh, and for her sisters. And um, so she focused on the good times, on the times uh, before uh, before the treaty and before, before uh, you know, there was uh, the, the, a lot of discrimination against her and her family. And so I kind of wanted to learn, learn more about it. I uh, was down in Silicon Valley and I uh, was doing investment banking and the market completely imploded there <laughs> with the dot-coms. And so uh, I applied to UBC um, on a lark and got a scholarship. And I said, well, you know, law, it's, it's interesting. It's something... I don't really know a lot about. Um, I mean, I have a lot of relatives that are lawyers, but I didn't really understand what it was about. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to to try it out, see if I liked it. And in my first year at uh, UBC, I was uh, taught property law by June McHugh, who's uh, an indigenous uh, lawyer and, uh, and prof. And um, she just opened my eyes to questions I hadn't really thought about before. And and uh, kind of explained in a, in a very clear way to me what, what happened with the treaties, what happened to Indigenous people in Canada. And so I wanted to learn more. And so I'd, I'd take all the black letter law courses because I wanted to, you know, burnish my, <laughs> burnish my credentials. But where I could, I would uh, either audit or take, uh, take seminar courses or write my, my paper on Indigenous-related stuff. And so once I, once I graduated, I worked at a, at a firm that I was doing mainly uh, corporate commercial and M&A type stuff. But 
there was one lawyer who sent out an email and he said, uh, does anyone know anything about modern treaty? And so I'd been, you know, reading up a lot about that when I was in, in school. And I said, yeah, me. So um, I got to start to do modern treaty work, which uh, I really, really enjoyed. And so I uh, continued to do work related to that. I volunteered to be on my First Nations Development Corporation board and um, was able to, I hope, uh, I think I, I added a lot of value. Certainly we turned around the Development Corporation, which was in a, a bit of a difficult space and I worked with my community on other initiatives like the Arctic Economic Council. My, my nation's uh, way up in the, in the Arctic in the Northwest Territories in Yukon. So we have some interesting input into policy as it relates to the Arctic. And uh, I just found it so rewarding. And I was given the opportunity to go on the board of the First Nations Financial Management Board for a couple of years from 2015 to 2017. And I was uh, very inspired by our chair. He's a, he's a real visionary. And uh, when this role to be CEO came up, I was like, I got to do that. So I applied and I was very, very happy to get it. And then uh, it's been an amazing process of working in tandem with him in terms of taking his vision, adding my own vision, and uh, really driving the um, the agenda forward. Um, so we've we published a long uh, document uh, that uh, is a, is a framework for where we think economic reconciliation can go, and it's got six different pillars. And I won't bore you with it, but uh, we've been uh, we've published the first chapter, which is the overview, and then we're publishing six more chapters that are on each of these these different pillars. And it's gotten a lot of a lot of traction in. Um, in Ottawa and in Victoria and other parts of the country. And uh, we think that we have this ability to work uh, collaboratively with other organizations and with the government to create this, this roadmap, this, uh, this way to really create economic reconciliation and drive it forward. So yeah, it's, an, it's a super exciting time. And sometimes I remark to the people that I work with is the, the feeling that I had when I was working in Silicon Valley in terms of uh, everything being possible it's kind of the same kind of thing right now. Like we just have to move uh, move beyond uh, critiquing and complaining and just come up with exciting ways to to, to make it happen. And uh, no idea is a bad idea. And we just come up come up with the ideas, work with other people to come up with the ideas, and and create this this real vision for how we can uh, create that economic reconciliation. So I, I'm I'm hoping that we have a lot of young lawyers listening to this podcast who are thinking hearing your story and obviously interested about your career path, what advice would you give them, uh, especially if they're from Indigenous communities, about uh, about the work, either the work you're doing if they're interested in or, or other areas where they can contribute, I guess, as a lawyer? There, there's it, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity right now. And there's different different strokes for different folks, different areas that you can be working as a lawyer. Um when I was first starting out, I wanted to do solicitor work for lawyers and or for indigenous nations, and there really wasn't much of that going on. But suddenly now it's just exploded, and I, I see some of the younger lawyers with amazing practices working with nations. Um, I also, you know, continue to see great opportunity working within organizations like ourselves, where we're quasi-government or um, government-funded, and we can create the policy and the ideas. I guess it really depends on the, the young lawyer's uh, interests and aptitude. You know, if you want to do litigation, there's tons of litigation out there. If you want to do uh, business, there's tons of business out there. And if you want to make change, there's tons of opportunities too. You know, if you want to do something more conventional, like intellectual property or something like that, 
there's there's an increasing awareness of the value that Indigenous people bring to these practices and an in increasing number of Indigenous people within the practices. It, what, what's exciting from that point of view is that as we roll out things like the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act um, that require government to consult and cooperate and, and uh, get an Indigenous eye to legislation, that these people that are in these specialties can start to assist government, assist First Nations collectively and Indigenous people collectively, that legislation is reflective of Indigenous people. So even if you take a black letter thing, you, you can probably have, find an opportunity to give back in, in your particular area of law. Do you have advice for um, other CBA members or legal professions working in the area of truth and reconciliation or economic reconciliation that we were talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think besides opening the door for opportunities for Indigenous people within businesses and ensuring that there's more inclusion, like, I mean, I, I look at some of the stats that have been published for the Canada Business Corporations Act or reporting issuers, so public companies, and uh, it's quite surprising how little representation there is of Indigenous people in corporations, particularly, I think, um, the, the number for the number of TSXV executives who are who identified as Indigenous, I think it was zero. So, you know, yeah, yeah. So Indigenous people are sort of 20 to 30 times uh, underrepresented uh, within boards and within um, senior management. So I'd recommend that businesses take a look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations, and particularly uh, recommendation number 92, which talks about educating senior management on the history and, and, and the, the, what really happened with respect to the history and the law, and to reflect more on systemic uh, racism as well. With respect to firms, I mean, I, I think the, the Law Society in BC now has mandatory Indigenous training, and uh, I've taken the course. I thought it was, it was excellent. I learned stuff there that I, I probably should have known, but I didn't. And uh, very well done. And I can see uh, a need for that kind of education across the different law societies in Canada. Uh, we also have been working on the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee at the CBABC, and we've created a Reconciliation Action Plan, uh, which is now rolled out across the country for the CBA, and consider whether or not your firm, well, I would suggest that they should consider um, having a reconciliation action plan in place and looking at what that would entail for, for the firm. We have an Aboriginal Lawyers Forum out here in BC, uh, which has been a real opportunity for Indigenous people to network and to, to, uh, to join together and to share and to mentor. And um, it's, it's been a fantastic way to bring uh, lawyers into the profession and for lawyers to, Indigenous lawyers to find that support. And uh, having a, an Aboriginal Lawyers Forum in, in some of the other provincial CBA sections would be, our, our uh, CBA uh, uh, branches would be, would be amazing. It's good. It's good. Good recommendation. Um, I did before I move on. I wanted to just also make a pitch that the CBA has other resources such as the Path. Oh, it's great. Which is 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 a program, obviously that uh, that we're very we're very proud of, um, and as well as we've created toolkits for law firms on the area of, of creating their truth and reconciliation pathway. So I just a pitch there because it's my podcast, but, uh, but I appreciate the comments that you made. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great course and it's, uh, 
it's it's very manageable in terms of the time commitment, and uh, it's got great material in it. So I'm going to ask you to take a crystal ball for a second, because you say you were kind of in this interesting, sounds like, you know, a very, you know, you're talking about the Silicon Valley and kind of lots of things happening, and now here lots happening. Where where are we five years, 10 years, 15 years? Or maybe where would you like us to be? Maybe that's a better question. Where would you like us to be? Carol Ann Hilton of uh, Indigenomics talks about the $100 billion Indigenous economy, but I think we're almost, we're almost there. And uh, I look at the, the trends in Canada and what's, what's important uh, going forward with respect to uh, the global, global trade, global finance, climate change. And Canada is in a, a great position to develop electrical resources, to develop uh, mines that uh, are focused on rare earths and other um, uh, minerals that are required for for batteries, but it's it's all going to happen on traditional territory, and so there's a real ability now for the nations to work together with the provinces and the feds to jointly develop these opportunities. And when I look at the international capital markets, I think that the capital markets are going to reward Canada if we are very uh, low carbon, very environmentally aware, which is where we're heading. And also increasingly, uh, the capital markets will look at uh, Indigenous rights and whether or not we're abiding by that. And I think Canada is is furthest ahead, arguably, in the world on a lot of those, those files. It still has more to go, but um, collectively, if capital markets are measuring how Canada and Canadian businesses are doing, and we're doing well on those kinds of metrics, then I think there's a real opportunity for a huge boon to Canada. And so I see a real opportunity for these nations to be a real part of the Canadian economy and to benefit and share with the rest of Canada and, and all Canadians. I hope you're right. It's not, that sounds like a promising future that I'd like to be part of. So um, let me ask you a bit, because the other thing that I you know, like to talk to my my guests on Conversations with President on is about volunteerism. It's something that I've been talking a lot during my uh, CBA presidency, the importance of volunteering within your community. It's beneficial, obviously, to the community in which you serve as well as you personally. So for, for lawyers, whether they be Indigenous lawyers or non-Indigenous lawyers interested in the area of truth and reconciliation, how would they get involved? Where would they, where they, would they be able to, to provide their, their contributions? Well, I mean, I think we have, uh, certainly in BC, we have uh, the CBA section on truth and reconciliation. That's a great opportunity for people to learn more and volunteer their time towards driving uh, truth and reconciliation forward. There are a number of nonprofits out there, like the Channing Wenjack Foundation, that people could uh, become involved with there. On a personal level, I mean, learning more about the nation in whose territory you, you live in and and looking for ways that you can participate in local activities, uh, like like going on the march for the Truth and Reconciliation Day, like the Orange Shirt Day, or to go on a march for the uh, National Indigenous Day and uh, enjoy the food and the company and meet people and see if there are opportunities to uh, to become involved in, in community volunteering. I mean, there's there's lots of, in Vancouver, lots of organizations that are focused on the more vulnerable populations, a lot of which are Indigenous. I, I suspect increasingly there will be opportunities on the economic reconciliation side. I'm sure the, the province is thinking hard about setting up a, 
secretariat to uh, which would uh, be be looking at how whether or not uh, uh, the laws of British Columbia combine, uh, uh, comply with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So there's some amazing work opportunities there. There's probably going to be consultations, tons of consultations where you can give some ideas on on how you might make uh, the laws better and more consistent with with truth and reconciliation. I mean, becoming educated is a big part of it. And through education, you'll see different opportunities. Can't end a podcast better than that thought. So thank you very much and best of luck. Yeah, thanks a lot uh, for having me. And and just a, a final thought. Uh, Maurice, I, I love the quote by Murray Sinclair, former Senator Murray Sinclair, um, Honorable Murray Sinclair. He and the TRC Commission showed people the mountain and now... Uh, he asked for them to, uh, for the people to climb, and I think it's it's the opportunity to climb uh, climb together and to really uh, try and make Canada a, a better place through economic reconciliation and through reconciliation. This is conversations with the president, presented by the Canadian Bar Association.